but it's a curiosity as to where we are, what we are. Existence, the physical universe, is basically playful. Welcome to the Curious Humans podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Miller. Hello, Curious Human. I'm really thrilled to be bringing you this philosophical deep dive with genuinely, I think, one of the most radical, insightful, and big picture thinkers of our generation. Zach Stein is a co-founder of the Consilience Project, which publishes novel research and explores questions surrounding global risk mitigation and existential threats facing humanity. He's also the academic director for the Center of Interval Wisdom and the author of Education in a Time Between Worlds, which I've personally gifted to many friends and it's shifted how I think about the future of, of learning and schooling. In this conversation, we cover some really fascinating territory. Because of his multidisciplinary approach, Zach has, I think, a such a unique perspective on some of the biggest questions of our time. To give you a sense of what to expect in this conversation, we begun with a model of what it means to move into the perspective of post-traumatic growth he shared a thought experiment of news arc which asks the question of what seeds of ideas could be stored such that they could reboot human civilization we talk about the role of the nervous system in adult development and zach's diagnosis of global intimacy disorder and reimagining what it means to be human and his work to start the conversation for a new kind of global philosophy. I don't know about you, but I've been sitting with the question of what really matters, like truly. There's so much noise out there, and conversations like this one with Zach are honestly the reason that I began this Curious Humans project. So if this conversation resonates, do consider sharing a link with a friend who might also appreciate it, and I really hope this acts as a, as a conversation starter. What questions come alive in your mind and how might you see yourself contributing? Frankly, I think we need more curious citizen philosophers, more of us who are willing to step out of our comfort zone and into this challenging intellectual territory. All right, without further ado, please sit back and enjoy this feast of ideas with philosopher, futurist and wise human, Mr. Zach Stein. Well, good afternoon, Zach. It's, it's lovely to have you here. Yeah, man, it's good to be here. How are you feeling in your body in three words? How am I feeling my body in three words? Let's see. Open, tense, and grounded. Thank you. Well, um, I'd like to start off with a question that I ask each guest. And that question is, were you exceptionally curious as a child? And if so, could you tell me a story about something that you were curious about? I was a curious child, for sure. I was definitely a curious child. I wouldn't say I was exceptionally curious, but I was a curious child. Um, you know, my mom was an educator, so it was easy to be interested in a lot of things. So I, I was very interested in nature in particular. 
So I spend a lot of time by myself in nature uh, out of curiosity and exploration. Um, so, but I wasn't extraordinarily curious or anything. So <laughs> I played video games and uh, uh-huh. music as I became an adolescent. So when I was no longer a child, then I did become extraordinarily curious about hmm. music in particular. Hmm. Hmm, nice. Okay. Um, and did you have any any favorite books or stories growing up that come to mind? And, and I like to ask this question because I have a theory that sometimes the narrative of these, these stories kind of are connected to our, our life's purpose or our contributions later, later in life. Totally. I mean, there's family stories, family folklore, mm. like that my great-grandfather was a member of the Black Hand, which was an anarchist group. That was a mm. that assassinated the Archduke Ferdinand and started, started oh, wow. in Yugoslavia. <laughs> and oh it's like it's, okay. the evidence is pretty good, but you can't confirm or disconfirm. So there's that folklore. <laughs> um, and then, you know, my dad was a chemist, so we so he was into science fiction. So mm. I knew a lot of science fiction growing up. Dune, uh, mm. the David Lynch movie in particular, the David Lynch version of Dune, which mm. is kind of amazing. Mm. Uh, and I read a lot of Arthur C. Clarke, you know, so that, that kind of stuff. Mm, wow, I didn't realize you had a, a history of, of anarchy in the, in the family. I mean, this is, yeah, this is, it's yeah, this is this but is, I wasn't yeah. told that. I got a little bit older. <clears throat> That's a strange story. The Black Hand is also like a mystical group. Um, so in any case, <laughs> mm. so it was an influential story once I became a teenager. But as a little kid, then definitely. The science fiction of my dad. Nice, beautiful, beautiful. Well, um, as I as I mentioned just before we hit record, one of the the primary kind of sparks behind my desire to speak with you came from the reson the resonance that I've heard you uh, from when I've heard you describe the the pre tragic, the tragic, and the post tragic, and the way that you that you write and speak about this. I kind of sense that you've lived through or lived with loss at some point in your life, and I'm. I'm wondering if you could speak to your experience of that and and if so, like how it shaped you and your perspective on on life. Yeah, I mean, of course, that's very personal. Um, the, uh, you know, my wife was subject to iatrogenic harm from a pharmaceutical drug and a very bad brain injury. Um, so it's very complex, but I've been caring for her for 10 years. And so that's the... Uh, the main, <laughs> the main event of my life, really. Uh, she's improving. She's continuing to get better, but it's been obviously quite, quite difficult. And uh, so that <laughs> kind of opened my eyes to certain unresolvability of tragedy, um, and also the inescapability. You know, iatrogenic harm is when a drug injures you, right? Iatrogenic means savior. So when the medical intervention itself hurts you, this is a whole class of medical reality, basically, is iatrogenic harm. And so I also became clear that there's many, many who were also put in Megan's position. Um, and so you just see these whole, whole blankets of tragedy just sweeping across whole populations. And you realize, oh, this is a this is a phenomenon of consciousness. Like we've always inhabited <laughs> these, you know, the worst ones are of course invisible, um, not vocal or 
seen or even understood the private uh, immiserations uh, in anonymity, which are often um, kind of doled out <laughs> as civilization gets bigger and more complex. So I started to kind of just see that whole underworld, if you will. Uh, and then working with Mark Gaffney in the context of kind of integral theory and other things, that notion of the pre-tragic, tragic, post-tragic as stations of consciousness is kind of part of um, a certain lineage of rabbinical teaching, really. Um, it's like a Kabbalistic set of three layers. Uh, one interpretation you can do pre-tragic, tragic, post-tragic, and I expanded that and placed it within my kind of metapsychological framework um, in terms of personality development. And there's other ones. There's, you know, naive, cynical, post-cynical, <laughs> which is not the same as pre-tragic, tragic, post-tragic, post but it's very, <laughs> it's very noticeable. Or that one in particular, post-cynicals, key <laughs> to uh, to communication i think effectively to solve problems but so so yeah so that that's where it came from it came from the experience of caregiving uh, and that opened up a huge amount and uh, a huge amount of emotion but also thought you know my second book was basically put together in that context uh, so there's a little bit of the genesis. And I think people can tell when I speak to it, uh, you know, so it's shaped the way I speak. <laughs> you know, being a caregiver shapes how one speaks. So experiencing tragedy, people post-tragic, you can actually identify through the use of language. Um, you know, I've spoken about uh, Albert Murray, who is a blues musician and a man of letters, a great author, that the blues musicians speak that post-tragic kind of idiom. So, so yeah, that you picked up on it. <laughs> and again, it's a dimension of personality. So often people who've been through tragedy can often identify and resonate with other people who've been through tragedy. And even though it's inescapable, you know, it's going to come at a certain time. So if you catch someone, if you catch someone when they're pre-tragic and you yourself are tragic or post-tragic, it's going to be hard to, get along sometimes <laughs> like it's gonna, be, it's gonna be hard to see eye to eye so in particular the post-tragic seek out other people who are post-tragic but you can of course be mm -hmm. hurt wounded ptsd post-tragic and mm -hmm. all of that you know mm -hmm. uh, post-traumatic growth is a category of psychological research very important mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. not inevitable <laughs> mm -hmm. not inevitable is what the research shows and some of it's because yeah. it's hard to resolve we don't have the cultural resources uh -huh. to resolve tragedy psychologically. And so it yeah. lingers in our bodies. We can't yeah. free it. There's no invitation to the post-tragic, which is actually kind of a more almost, dare I say, religious orientation towards the world. Huh. Wow. It's it's interesting that you that you took it in, in that direction. I think that's that question of like what makes the difference between people that shift from or kind of stay in the unresolved pain of the tragic versus shifting into post-traumatic growth it has been one of the central questions that i've been kind of exploring oh, in the last so important in the last few years um I, i'm curious about the um why do you think the language shifts uh in in the do you, do, you, do you think there's a more kind of poetic slant on on the way that people express themselves i don't know i mean i, I 
I say that as someone as a cognitive developmentalist uh-huh. and as like a psychological practitioner or therapist, let's say, where careful attention to language is like everything. Um, and so you can, of course, see the post-tragic in people's choices <laughs> and the lives that, but I'm noting in particular that, yeah, they speak about the world in different ways and actually have, a, have an affectivity or an emotional dimension of their speech which is also resonant um the uh so that's so there's a long kind of complex thing about like you know as an educator uh, or as a teacher you want to be able to know where people are at so you can engage with them and help them along that's like what you want to do and so that ability to distinguish people at different stages of cognitive development is one thing which we could talk about which i know how to do but then how do you distinguish people at different stations of ensoulment or like levels of maturity of personality right in that second domain and then how do you assess people in their state capacities for things like freedom or uh thoughtless awareness or egoless choiceless awareness those kinds of dimensions um or even just their ability to emotionally self-regulate <laughs> and being honest about their own emotions um, that's a big one all of those things educators are tracking all the time and yeah. so um what i'm noting is in the post-tragic a certain a certain dimension of speech which is recognizable as in the post cynical because <laughs> they don't for example say cynical things or if they do they, <laughs> or if they do they use them as like teaching moments to like uh-huh. show how silly these cynical things are or something like that you're right so, right uh, so yeah so but it's good to catch that and be able to think you can notice in your own speech because no one's you're always going up and down <laughs> and yeah, kind of yeah, yeah. always have it locked and when a new tragedy comes it's often easy to drop back down into the tragic mm. even if you've been even if you resolved past tragedies with the post-tragic awareness for years, mm. there's always a new thing that'll totally. get you. <laughs> and again, yeah. it's the structure. It's not like you failed because a tragedy has occurred. It's yeah, the opposite, yeah. in fact. You've you've deep you've had an opportunity to deepen now, uh-huh. and that's what you're here to do. Mm. Uh, and so that the invitation of tragedy into deeper ensoulment mm. is what those stations are about. Uh, mm. So yeah, you get it, you lose it more tragedy you grow more as a result of it Mm. um and i think our culture avoids true tragic confrontation you know like we'll look at like horror movies and stuff and like we get melodramatic things occurring but in real in real life and the medical system is a good example of this but in other places as well um, it's hard to get it's like sand in the gears of what's supposed to be a perfectly efficient <laughs> money-making scheme. It's like, yeah. oh, there's actually, yeah. yes, let's sympathize and send cards and stuff. But like, no, man, it's actually very inefficient to be <laughs> sick or dying or yeah. grieving, right? Yeah. Um, and so, so yeah, so you, when you're the post-tragic awareness has to somehow institutionalize as well. There's dimensions yeah. of that in prior religious practice. Um, yes, which we've kind of like whittled away into some uh-huh. strange secular reality where tragedies don't really truly exist or money can solve them or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a little bit more on that. But yeah, it's an interesting and important capacity. Mm. Yeah, well, th- thank you for thank you for sharing the the story and journey of, of your wife. And, and for me personally, um, I think my journey through grief 
came from after losing my ex fiance who um, had bipolar and she kind of had an anxiety attack whilst at, um, whilst at work as, as a doctor. And that for me was kind of like my, it kind of took me into that underworld realm to some degree. And the way that I came to view it, um, like emerging on the other side of that was almost as like a, like, like diving into a sacred wound which is one of the words used by uh, Bill Plotkin or like a, like a portal of sorrow that emerged into this experience of, of really extraordinary beauty and, and joy. Um, David White uses the phrase deep and dazzling darkness. And yeah, this, this for me has just been um, like kind of exploring like the gifts of grief that we don't necessarily think of. And the, like, like you said, kind of the expansiveness that can exist on the other side. And not to say that we, you know, don't go back into the, into the darkness, but it's almost like our heart's capacity to feel has just been increased to some degree. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, there's an, al- there's an alchemical language there, right? The, mm, the, the mm-hmm. shining glowing darkness. There's also the, the black glowing sun <laughs> of the mm. alchemists and the mm. blackening uh, as a necessary process, which means the darkening, the putrefaction processes, mm-hmm. like the going into and dissolving mm-hmm, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. of identity. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. All of those things are, are hard to do. Like people pay thousands of dollars to go on meditation retreats and like mm-hmm. take ayahuasca and stuff to like have identity breakdowns and have <laughs> like, but you can do that, of course. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. that is going to happen if a true tragedy occurs. It's that's one of the definitions. That's why I said I dimension of identity growth let's say because there's a logic to it where you have an identity it's a hypothesis about yourself it hits something <laughs> the mm. it can't contain um right uh, that kills it basically it like the identity dies yeah. uh and so that that means that there's a basic breakdown that occurs which again as we as we said ptsd different from post-traumatic growth right and so this distinction I believe, and this is to rewind to where I said before, one of the things that allows people to grow into post-traumatic um, flourishing and growth and to, to heal from it. I, and the research shows us with some of these indices of the, the qualities of people who experience both traumatic growth and probably telling you something already now, but is that they have a sense of quote, spirituality, meaning making, and the ability to basically see the events that occurred as meaningful mm-hmm. to them for their growth and things of that quality mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. as opposed to near-term catastrophizing in a whole bunch of other ways of, of having the event be detrimental story about self yep yep uh, and uh and so what i said before was that cultural resources are often needed yep. to have people make sense of tragedy because you can't make sense of it according to uh, most of what the culture would give you so where are the resources the phrases and words and images and practices that provide that scaffolding for people who are going through real real tragedy Um, some of it is is of course physiological and context and support and the presence of key other people and other things but Mm -hmm. there's this dimension that is let's call it nomadic or mm-hmm. uh, dealing with the psyche, um, which needs those cultural resources that say, hey, yes, <laughs> like mm-hmm. tragedy is very real um, and uh, often cannot be remediated. 
that's I think the important thing is that the tragic mm. structure is not a problem that can be solved. Yeah, right. It's lived, <laughs> right? It's lived through. If you and this is again one of the signs of a pre-tragic consciousness. When you approach them with a the tragedy, they try to fix it for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> with the best intentions, right? But the but the idea is not they actually have to roast in the fire of the tragedy for quite a while mm. uh, to be able to see through, to be able to see through it, to kind yeah. of this archetypal this archetypal structure, which is then creates growth. You you kind of metabolize it somehow. But again, there's so much that's out of one's control too, which is another characteristic of I think post tragic consciousness is the realization that you know but by the grace of god go i like there's so much of that occurred that i couldn't mm. that was not up to me that allowed me to be able to care for my wife um, mm. even just simple things um, like a house <laughs> and the money to pay rent and stuff right so um uh so yeah so anyway so there's more to it than just like pull up your bootstraps and be post-tragic. <laughs> like there's a lot of social conditions and material conditions that make that difficult. Mm. Yeah, I I really resonate with with what you just shared. And I think from my perspective, it, it was a combination of both like um, having a kind of mythic lens to some degree through which I, I've used the experience. And my my lived experience was one of, or the metaphor that I had in my mind was almost like being in the midst of a great storm and it's like the storm is stripping away aspects of my identity that i was like grasping onto and you know for a good period of time in denial and just resisting the waves of feeling and emotion and for me the having kind of both kind of loving friends and family around for a kind of safe like to hold space in some ways and um time by myself and experiences that just facilitated a letting go and facilitated a surrender into the pain I think was what was required um and, and I feel like those are the uh if, if someone had kind of told me like you need to have a spiritual perspective I think I would have told them to fuck off frankly <laughs> of course no, this is not one that is yeah 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 and that's it's, exactly it, but right it, these it are one comes in retrospect yeah, yeah they emerge organically from the experience like exactly. that's how I'm remembering at least the interview data on these subjects yeah. who identified it. it wasn't that someone solved the problem by giving them religion which is what yeah. a lot of people want. totally totally you know, yeah it's it's that by metabolizing the tragedy the result was now they have a personality structure yep. that relates to the greatest scope of the universe and and meaning of human life in a different way than it did before totally. um, and uh so yeah, I'm right there with you. Yeah, it's the it's the worst thing that someone can say when you're going through a tragedy is everything happens for a reason. Like, and that's what's the and the pre-post of any three levels, right? The pre-tragic, tragic, post-tragic. Yeah. And even the naive, cynical, post-cynical. Post-cynical and naive sometimes look similar, right? And pre-tragic and post-tragic sometimes look similar because in the post-tragic consciousness you can actually say everything happens for a reason <laughs> mm -hmm, right mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but in the pre-tragic consciousness when you mm -hmm. say that it's kind of like bullshit right it's like um, and so what's that yeah. what's that yeah. difference and you see that a lot in in some circles where it's like that's a post-tragic phrase great yeah. but the way you just used it was to shut down the awareness of actual tragedy because you just mm. explained it away. Well, everyone's mm. got their own karma and they're on their own path. You're like, no, man, mm -hmm. look at it for a longer. <laughs> mm. You go to India and the first thing they tell you to do is not to give money to the beggars. 
or even really look at them and move quickly past them. It's like mm-hmm. in the guidebooks for spiritual seekers who go to India. You know? So there's this <laughs> complex yeah. array of things that the psyche does to maintain mm-hmm. being at any station. And you can get stuck at the tragic, by the way. Like you can have long, complex grief, which gets intertangled into your material conditions. And then you're just kind of like stuck in this tragic loop. Yeah. Um, yeah. That is one of the things that I think our culture has uh, gone out of there. The culture as a whole has moved out of the kind of pre-tragic, high modernist, you know, almost utopian optimism about what we were doing with capitalism and science and yep. Yep. the world system into a kind of tragic structure mm-hmm. with the birth of postmodernism and other kind of post-World War II the bomb and the holocaust it's like mm-hmm. <laughs> and we've been reverberating in the in the tragedy for a long mm-hmm. time very difficult to get out of it a lot of people moving back to the pre-tragic <laughs> to yep. escape the discomfort but cool. many people yep. profiting and maximizing on the perpetuation of the kind of a tragic identity structure um, yeah 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 uh so yeah, so that notion of the languages of the post-tragic, the practices of the post-tragic, um, how to create communities and educators and others who are offering those cultural resources for people to exit the tragic into the post-tragic, which then becomes constructive again mm-hmm. in a non-naive, <laughs> mm-hmm. non-pre-tragic way. Because that's the mm-hmm. thing, once you're in there, when you're truly in the tragedy, you're just like, fucking A fuck it all. burn it down like what are you gonna do <laughs> it's not up to me my whole personality is destroyed by something out of my control like tell me to like work for the greater good or do whatever you know like uh, so i think yeah, there's yeah. a key kind of fulcrum move out of that stance to something that is then reconstructive and mm. post-tragic and where you can laugh and love and cry and do all those things like again in a new way Mm-hmm. Those tragic laughter is key. I laugh a lot when I talk in, in podcasts and stuff. And people sometimes misinterpret it, you know, but it's because I'm trying to like lighten the emotional burden of what I'm saying. <laughs> there, you know? Yeah, I, I feel like there's also a healthy energy of, of kind of the trickster that kind of has to come mm-hmm. through sometimes. Um, yeah, on, on that note, like I've, I've sometimes wondered for myself, like if I were able to truly connect with with the grief of the world right now like the loss of biodiversity the pain that's been experienced by cultures all around the world in the same way that i grieved for the loss of my partner i feel like it would it would kind of change me completely um and, and i almost wonder if on some like archetypal level we're like cr- creating the conditions for truly unimaginable global grief that in some way strips away the armor and our sense of separation and is like catapulting us into a new a new way of being um I, I, do you does that resonate and, and is that connected well, no but that's you? a scary scenario right because that's where we learn from disaster as we always have like <clears throat> well right, you know right. we learn from disaster yeah. uh, and we've never preemptively averted disaster right. based on our prior learning at least not like a large scale if you look at like world war one world war two and then the bombs and it's like uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah what do yeah. we have to learn from this time to reset yeah. the global system uh and it's a i don't know certainly isn't this plan it certainly isn't this pandemic <laughs> uh we've, we've accelerated the global totally. system um and so yeah the the that sense of hard lessons uh as needed to break <laughs> personality structure mm-hmm. it does apply at a, like a cultural level 
Mm. I don't know what it would, I don't know what it would take. Um, you know, the, yeah, it's mm, a good question. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, as a, I guess, as a breath worker, I've seen in myself that the moment that a trauma is kind of fully seen and reintegrated, there's also this like incredible release of energy that can sometimes catalyze, you know, spiritual experiences and, and things like that. And I'm, I'm wondering if like, that is a, like a micro version of the shift from the tragic to the post-tragic that literally lives in our nervous system. Um, and so I, I guess I'm also curious, how, how does the process of, of insolment, which I know is the word that you use, how does that feed into human and spiritual development? Do you think, what is the relationship there? Totally. There's a few things. What you're saying is right about the nervous system having kind of like a, a script for dealing with intense, tragic events. And it's documented in the animal world. I actually saw it happen once to a chipmunk that was being eaten by, mm. eaten by a, a snake. Mm, I, it was like I was being eaten by the snake. And when I came up on it, it the snake dropped it and went away. And the chipmunk was, of course, Shake, head, head first being eaten by a snake about to die. And so it starts to shake and it shook for quite a while. It just shook, you know, it stood there scared. Um, Mm -hmm. And then eventually it ran off and shook more of the side and then it ran off more. And I was like, damn, that's interesting. Like Mm -hmm. that it it, it was processing. You could tell when it was something was occurring in its nervous system that allowed (laughs) it to continue to just run away from me, to just continue to want to live and to want to eat again and sleep again or whatever like yeah yeah um so not to anthropomorphize the, <laughs> the chipmunk but similarly I, <laughs> the I, same thing I've happens in humans for sure yeah i've experienced it myself you actually the release yeah. of the of the energy through grief and crying in particular i think in mm-hmm. certain forms of like pretty archetypally universal human gestures that occur in, in sorrow and grief and, and uh um it does have something, I don't know the right term for it, but there's something like a reset that's an emotional uh, Mm -hmm. dynamic and a clearing. Uh, And so there's something about our short-circuiting those processes Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, by being afraid of them or reverting to the pre-tragic and holding and not (laughs) fully releasing. Yeah. very common yeah uh, that you get these complex forms of either stuck in tragedy or uh stuck in like a kind of a shallow personality structure that can't accommodate tragedy um, so that the the need for emotional release in the mind body energy system uh is a somatic uh kind of like noetic hybrid event it's like mm-hmm. and it um yeah so it's key crying i have to cry <laughs> sob those kinds of things um and as you were mentioning you also need to be in some place where you feel that it's safe uh-huh. to express those emotions um, yeah. whether you know they won't be misunderstood or used against you or anything like that so yeah. a certain amount of safety is needed to to grieve enough to clear the energy yeah. to reconstitute the self um I do believe physical shaking is often usually actually literally part of it <laughs> for many people who totally. come out of tragedy. Um, totally. Yeah, but particularly in the case of, of of physical, well, and emotional traumas too, there's usually like a like a dorsal vagal shutdown, which is when we don't feel safe at the time to complete that reflex. And that just right. gets stored in our limbic system until there's a point where we feel safe enough to go back into it and complete it. 
Um, so it, it really is like the presence. It's a combination of, I think, awareness, presence, and also kind of safety and often co-regulation with a, with another human or a, or a practitioner or someone. Um, mm. uh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, zooming the lens out a little bit, I, I once heard you share an anecdote about the, I think what was known as the oxygen crisis millions of years ago, um, and how it nearly ended the experiment of, of life. Um, could you briefly speak to this and, and maybe how this, uh, this shift could be applied as a metaphor to what we're kind of experiencing right now? Mm, totally. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, I'm not a biologist, so okay. caveats <laughs> everywhere, right? Like, um, but I heard, I believe it was from Michael Garfield or, or someone who actually really studied biology no, that there was a period in evolutionary history long ago when we we're just dealing with the oceans and like single celled organisms and stuff. And there was basically very little oxygen or no oxygen. It was mostly nitrogen and other crazy gases that the whole planet was had. And then the life in the ocean started to produce oxygen. Oxygen at such a rate that it was going to kill itself. Like there was nowhere for the oxygen to go. And so life was at risk of dying as a result of its own byproduct. Uh, and then spontaneously, and I forget the name of the event, um, but it's a serious event. Um, it is uh, the emergence of life that metabolized oxygen, <laughs> uh, which you imagine through evolutionary groping would occur when oxygen becomes in surplus and other routes towards preserving life are kind of becoming increasingly blocked you would get the emergence of something that solved the crisis through uh, a novelty, an evolutionary novelty. Um, so it was a key moment. And again, I'm blanking on it because I'm not a biologist of what the actual names for it are, but a biologist listening will know and they'll be like, maybe they'll email you. <laughs> but the idea is that crisis in evolutionary terms um, is a driver of emergence. Mm -hmm. yeah that and that's how if you look back at evolutionary history uh you're seeing basically a kind of dialectic between crisis and the emerge and the kind of the emergence of response to crisis and this is a way of thinking about history and evolution but all specifically biological evolution that was touted in darwinian times even and that darwin accommodated in his work a kind of catastrophism which believed that the fragmentation of species was a response to cataclysmic event mm -hmm. uh, and we know that that's true at least in part many scientists at the time still held a sense of like plentitude and that the earth would never go through some kind of mass extinction that would cause a huge change in speciation of evolution you know but of course it, it did and so mm -hmm. someone like charles sanders Peirce was trying to integrate that with mm -hmm. darwin's notion so the the point here is that natural selection is one mechanism of evolution of course but there's another mechanism which is mm -hmm. crazy shit coming out of nowhere like comets and plate tectonics <laughs> <laughs> and way too much oxygen being produced and we don't know why um yeah, yeah, which yeah. evolution somehow finds a way to yeah you know, um, and you don't want to give it like intelligence, but it seems to be able to accommodate it almost yeah. intentionally or intelligently, not through sheer groping because the probabilities would be just so astronomically inconceivable that it would find the right random response. Right? Totally. totally. So if you start to apply that logic up through, as I said, culture and history, which people have, that actually human innovation 
an emergence of novelty and cultural evolution uh, is a response usually to crisis. Um, and that's, I mean, that's fair enough. <laughs> There's almost no other way to, to think about it. Um, the problem is that like, we're aware of that. Right. So there's this like reflective, reflective, mm. like a, I want to call it like a reflectivity mm. uh, that we face with regards to radical cultural change at this point. Because mm. even in prior stages in history, they weren't thinking about <laughs> all the prior stages of history and reconstructing the mechanisms and social dynamics and evolutionary forces that leads, leads to social change. Right. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. So there's something unique about the planetary moment um the sheer size and scope and the sheer amount of memory that we're holding of prior yeah. civilizational forms um yeah which is <laughs> just worth worth noting in terms of when you're thinking about like what what how does this thing roll into something totally. sustainable and new right and sustainable i don't mean in a trite ecological way a, <laughs> a planetary civilization that can exist in perpetuity yeah. which would have to be basically metastably adaptive mm -hmm. to things like climate and exponential technology so that's mm -hmm. like a big phrase but there's a lot in there um so to think about that that's related to your question because that, that's like an evolutionary shift <laughs> it's not like a change from one hegemonic form of capitalism to another like we went from the dutch to the british to the u.s to the who knows it's not like one of those it's a it's a larger scale change in the nature of how the species is working and if you even look at what the planetary biomedical supply chain has allowed through the pandemic like that's an altering of the whole human species <clears throat> it's like a almost uniform or attempting to be uniform medical intervention mm. at scale at a planetary scale it's crazy unprecedented mm -hmm. um, so the other ones we've done took a long time to roll out you know like mm -hmm. polio or whatever so so yeah so we're dealing with a, a form of transformation the best analogies of which are probably not from the social sciences mm -hmm. but from the evolutionary and geological sciences um, yeah like the 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 Tiliard Deschardins notion of the neosphere. Uh, he collaborated with a Russian uh, cosmist, Vladimir Vadensky, who not, I garbled that name. That's not the best way to say that name, <laughs> Vladimir Verdonsky. He was a Russian cosmist. He taught in Paris at the time and him and Tiliard collaborated. It was the Russian who coined the term biosphere and neosphere. Wow. Um, and, but he thought of the neosphere as a way of expressing the mind or consciousness or reason as a geological force. Right? Mm -hmm. He's looking at geological strata, the given geological forces that shape a planet, and then you get mm -hmm. the biospheric sources which act back upon the geological forces. Mm -hmm. And then you get the neospheric forces which are also operating in geological time and in with geological force. And of course, mm -hmm. the atom bomb being the most obvious <laughs> example of how mm -hmm. Uh, but all other things like the whole um, shaping of uh, dams and uh, canals and stuff like that. So, so yeah. So it's it's uh, <laughs> there's a quickening in the newosphere, I believe now, mm -hmm. in, in response to the to the instability of the basic civilization. And so that, that's that's one of the ways the ratchet's got to work. Um, mm -hmm. uh, unpredictable emergence in the in the noetic 
Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I feel like this, that story, on the one hand, gives me kind of hope in the sense of like, maybe what we're doing right now isn't a complete mistake. We're not completely fucking it up, but it's it's like part of a grander thing. But then at the same time, part of me is like, well, then, but if we just then rest on our laurels and just assume some kind of intervention from grace is going to kick in, then it's like, you know, is that fucking up the chance of that happening? <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's a really beautiful idea. And it, it reminds me of um, Daniel Schmattenberger talks about I think the metaphor he uses is almost like we're collectively giving birth to something that we cannot conceive of. And if you look at the way that a woman's be uh, like belly expands during um, the, the the birth process, it looks very unsustainable. It's like, okay, if this continues beyond nine months, like shit's not going to go well. <laughs> um, but then obviously there's the birth process and something that if you didn't know what was happening, um, it would look like it was, you know, a very kind of bad scenario. Um, but yeah, the, the, um, I, I really love the, the idea and the image of, of Neusfit. And I'd actually love to bring another powerful concept that you've mentioned, which is this image of, of Neus Ark. I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly, but, um, I got really excited about that. And I, I guess it's obviously inspired by the, by the Neusfit. So maybe for, for listeners who, who haven't seen your talk, could you speak to the story of, of Noose Ark and what it, what it represents? Noose Ark, yeah. Noose Ark, yeah. This is an idea from long ago. I first had this idea when I was like 21 or something. And it was because I heard about this seed bank that they were building in, and I think it was built now and then it got flooded or something, but they built it in, in a Scandinavian country. Uh, and it, it was supposed to house basically all the seeds requisite to kind of reboot the biosphere basically at least the agricultural base of civilization but at best like the whole biosphere so it was literally supposed to be a, a seed arc um, and i remember thinking yeah that's great but we're going to be too stupid to use it <laughs> because the civilization will have collapsed and we'll, we'll find this giant concrete thing and like open it up and then turn it into our house and like knock the seeds over or do whatever <laughs> and so i was like and so the idea of the newest arc is that we need something comparable but instead of being filled with material seeds it's it, it, it is filled with the seeds of ideas and architectures mm -hmm. for civilizational base reality mm -hmm. um and uh so it's a newest arc it's an arc of the mind and mm -hmm. it is intended to be something that could survive a wholesale collapse of known civilization and provide required noetic materials for reboot basically psychological materials and educational materials so it's a very complex problem in the philosophy of education it's actually became for me a thought experiment that i would use with my students in the philosophy of education because it forces you to think through some of the most basic and profound questions that philosophy of education concern right so many people's response when you say well we're going to reboot civilization we're going to like build this thing it's got the ideas in it and the the future humans find it and it teaches them to read and they're like why would you do that your civilization failed you should precisely <laughs> you should precisely not teach the next civilization right yeah, yeah, um, yeah. and that's a that's an age-old perennial question in the philosophy of education which concerns this relationship of teacherly authority mm -hmm. and the legitimacy of the elders to teach the young about how the world works, right? Um, and understanding that if you were to build an, a new Ozark, 
you'd have to do it well, which means you wouldn't be foolish enough <laughs> to put in things without uh, the ability for the person who is in interacting with it to, to learn appropriately for their context. Right? So it was a long way to say basically that if you build the newest arg right as an educator, it'll have educational materials that allow for the sovereignty and autonomy of the person who's interacting with it. Cause you, you don't know what the future will be like. So you can't give specific advice. You don't know totally. yeah, totally. like what the temperature of the earth will be. You don't know like any, anything. So it's actually a very hard question about yeah. how do you do education in under radical uncertainty about the future. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So there's another deep, because that's where we're in right now. Yeah. Like it's yeah, very yeah. hard. There's very hard for the youth to look at the elders and be like, you guys really have figured it out. Thanks. Can you <laughs> teach us how the world works and oh, man. like yeah. what it'll be like 20 years from now and how my job will be and how great it'll be like, um, so that's very difficult conversations uh, about the legitimacy of teacherly authority in a context where everyone kind of knows that we don't exactly know what the world's going to look like. So that means the forms of things that get put in the new Ozark have to be have a certain kind of structure to them. They're like crystalline seeds of potential future thought mm -hmm. rather than specific recipes for what to build. So a considered new Ozark handles that question of why even pass along the knowledge at all. <laughs> which is a good question i think that needs to be answered and then the other it also raises questions about how do you how do you teach like what how like with a seed vault presumably it's fairly easy you take the seeds out you throw them in the ground you could have like a four-page instruction manual of like here's how to plant seeds right <laughs> but with this with this it's, it's very difficult what is the actual object that's encountered by the post-apocalyptic mm -hmm. human that we can't imagine Right. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a question of deep technology and pedagogical design. Um, mm -hmm. And interestingly, like, you know, um, the president of Harvard, who was responsible also for the building of the atomic bomb, um, uh, uh, James uh, Bryant, uh, James Conan Bryant, uh, he, when that was underway, basically made very concrete plans to microfilm all the Harvard libraries uh, and anything he could find and store it away in some like deep underground bunker to preserve knowledge for humans on the other side of post-apocalyptic like nuclear mm -hmm. warfare. <laughs> so he had the newest arc idea. He was like, oh my God, mm -hmm. like if these bombs really work, we could destroy everything on the surface of the planet. It could be He's like, so Harvard's library is toast. So he was going to basically save it <laughs> and somehow make it available. I found out mm. about that after uh, mm. I had the new Ozark idea. Um, so it's a reasonable, like, thought experiment. Um, the question of then what it would take, and I'm, I've been writing a book on this. It's kind of like a sci-fi book that I'll probably never finish. Uh, mm. But it, oh, wow. the idea would be, um, like, how would you actually spec out to design this? Like, not yeah. as a thought experiment, what would it be? Yeah, it's an interesting yeah. question because when you look at all the X-risk research and the catastrophic risk research, it doesn't look good. Like, if you run those numbers, like if I'm Spock on the Starship Enterprise and I'm telling <laughs> Captain Kirk what this is, he's like, he'll be like, damn it, Spock, don't give me the statistics. <laughs> like one of those scenes where, because you just have to be running oh on some God, other so energy deep. if you yeah. look just objectively at 100%. all the risk parameters and, and things that are going on in that space. 
Uh, and so that means that there is a play to be made. Yeah. Not in thought experiment land, but in actual real world land. Yeah. There's a play to be made for the new Ozark. Um, and so I wonder sometimes like Google and other places, if, if there's not already something afoot to basically work to preserve uh, things through major cataclysm. You know, the government at least wants to preserve its operations <laughs> through major, through major <laughs> cataclysms. Uh, you know, the other idea I had for the new Ozark, which I write about in the book, is like, well, why not just preserve everything? Hmm. I mean, you could you could detail it down to just like a meta curriculum and give a bunch of stuff, but imagine you like advanced technology. Like, hmm. who knows what you could do? You could save everything, or at least everything starting from when digital began right totally. including every conversation that's ever occurred right mm -hmm. so there's speculation about huge underground mm -hmm. you know nsa run server farms where every conversation that's taking place in the whole united yep. states is being recorded uh, maybe right, that's a conspiracy right. theory maybe it's not but imagine <laughs> a situation where there is such a thing yeah maybe that's yeah. the newest arc it's everything yeah. that happened before yeah. the end <laughs> mm -hmm. right and uh but i decided against that because it's useless as a pedagogical tool and object um, but it is a fascinating artifact which may actually exist depending on where server farms are located some of them are in caves and mm. and on barges and other things that you could have after the quote-unquote end a hell of a digital record of what occurred um yeah and, uh, so future kind of digital archaeologists <laughs> <laughs> could could reconstruct a lot of of what went wrong perhaps um so that's some of like the speculative fiction that's useful for modeling educational problems today because basically we don't know how to teach when the future seems so uncertain yep. uh, and we don't know the kinds of conditions that future humans will be learners under uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and we actually don't know really how to organize and preserve digital knowledge very well and we know how to do it for certain types of purposes like mm -hmm. google and facebook and stuff mm -hmm. but as far as large-scale public storage of like civilizationally necessary knowledge mm -hmm. that's pedagogically useful for anyone who happens upon it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, that doesn't exist yeah um so so yeah so there's more to that whole thought experiment, but that, I'm fascinated you found it because I've never really published on it. It's like in footnotes and a couple of conversations, you know, so I'm glad you brought it up because it's a cool idea. Yeah, I, I honestly find it absolutely fascinating. And I, I think I watched your video like two or three times. Um, and what what came to mind for me after watching it was that the these kind of seeds on this arc are, it, it feels like it's less about transmitting information and knowledge and more about like in my mind, it was like cultivating the conditions for embodied wisdom to emerge. And I've, as I mentioned, I've kind of unexpectedly found myself exploring what might 21st century mystery schools or wisdom institutions like the Monastic Academy look like. Um, and, and for context, I've spoken to Jamie Wheel around his ideas around homegrown humans. I've talked to Daniel about Willow and, and Maple and, um, and this, this wilderness guide, Bill Plotkin, who facilitates journeys mm -hmm. of soul descent that are designed to like reveal one's mythopoetic identity. And mm -hmm. so with all of that as, as like a long preamble, um, I think what I'm really curious about is if we were to kind of keep extending this thought experiment and, and part of the arc or a big part of the arc maybe is 
is like a blueprint or an artifact for some kind of mystery school or maybe like an emergent network of mystery schools um and it's, let's say like you were one of the architects like what what are some of the what are some of those principles that underpin the the curriculum of practices and and like what is the educational environment necessary for human maturation and, and flourishing right it's a very interesting question because there's a couple of questions one is like that six <laughs> would, would we put would we put blueprints for a mystery school slash network of mystery schools in the new us arc right mm -hmm. that's the first question which is an interesting question so in this science fiction book i'm writing with which will never get completed it's set up as actually a debate between experts who are witnessing the end of civilization who need to build the newest arc and mm -hmm. so there's like a philosopher and a lawyer and a political leader and they don't have names they just have those titles and it's I like a platonic okay. dialogue debate yep. about how to build the newest arc getting right down to the technical details all the while updating you on the collapsing civilization mm -hmm. and the big debates about what should be included mm -hmm. and what should not be included obviously <laughs> that's again a basic question <laughs> educational philosophy yeah, is yeah, yeah. what do you put in the curriculum you can't put everything in the curriculum yeah. you're talking about something that's actually a powerful uh metacurricular principle which is you can put things in the curriculum like how to build curriculums mm -hmm. you can put things in the you can put things in the curriculum. you can make schools about how to make schools mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. put things in the new osark that actually have them creating future educational institutions like monastic academies so but i think the the more difficult or not more difficult it's a separate question a separate question is like how does this thing be become useful at all when it's encountered right what is it does it look like an atm or is it like a, a little ball that shoots out a hologram of a person <laughs> or is it like a cave you go into that's actually like huge like depository of knowledge like what is it right yep. and how does education actually work in terms of so there's a lot of debate about that like what should it be <laughs> right one guy suggests it is an android it's literally a humanoid robot that's indestructible right and then it's they encounter a human-like thing and the human-like thing speaks to them and they engage uh -huh. with the human-like thing as if it's a human mm -hmm. it's a pretty intuitive idea right um, kind of like a hologram, but actually real, because a hologram would be confusing because mm -hmm. you'd like try the primitive, <laughs> quote unquote, primitive post apocalyptic man would try to hit it and it would, you know, would swipe it. So, yeah, that's an interesting hypothesis. Um, and so, so yeah, that question of, and that in that question of what would that Android do? What would it have to be to be convincing a teacher? Then you get into all these questions of like the most primordial dimensions of teacherly authority. Uh, which concerned the mystery school, right? Um, where uh, outside of civilization, usually in the wilderness, um, uh, not officially sanctioned um, by the credentialing agencies of the civilization, mm -hmm. uh, not always, but usually, uh, it is a context for the transmission of the things that are most valuable. Um, and so again, that's about what you put in the newest arc. You couldn't put a whole manuscript about what's most valuable, which again has played all the way down to the Stoics and Zen. Like you're not gonna be able to say it. 
<laughs> you can live it with other people and experience it yeah. and know it. Yeah. Um, and so you'd have to ultimately the new art being inviting, inviting people into a certain form of humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so again, there's a, maybe even not a new, but in many people, a postmodern reaction, like who are we to tell the post-apocalyptic humans what it means to be human, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a reasonable question. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm running on the assumption that we have actually discovered important things about what it means to be human. Right? That the civilization wasn't a complete failure, even though it's dying, because most people's lives are not a complete failure, even though they die, <laughs> right? There's awesome stuff that goes down Entirely. next to the stuff that, like, how did that happen, <laughs> yeah. right? In the same person's life. And so similarly yeah. with civilization, we seem to think that because it's dying, or even if the species goes, and this is a, this gets way metaphysical, we don't have to go there, but like, you know, that death is not a failure hmm. always. Um, and so that's all a long way of saying i believe we do have some teacherly responsibility to whoever comes next even if they are unlike us Um, but we have to know how to distill from what we've been through what actually does matter Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's where the mystery schools try to preserve that in the face of kind of a breakdown of of understanding of value Um, Mm. so so yeah i support broadly what's happening at the mask academy and i speak with them um, fairly, fairly regularly. I mean, not all the time, but fairly regularly. And and the notion there is, yeah, that there could be a seed or a blueprint for new forms of monastic life mm-hmm. that could take root and flourish. Another dimension of civilizational collapse is the flourishing on the outskirts of collapsing civilizations <laughs> of mm-hmm. monasteries that maintain certain key practices through mm-hmm. uh, cataclysmic um, urban conflict. Um, so, mm. so yeah, so I don't, it doesn't, I think that's not bad to put your eggs in that basket. If I can use that metaphor. Hmm. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Where my, my, my mind went was almost like imagining it might take, you know, many generations or hundreds of years for the, the next, the next species or next version of humans to be able to interpret whatever was, was mm. created in, in in the arc itself um but so so kind of coming back to um a conversation i had with daniel recently actually we were talking about the nervous system i've been running this course called nervous system mastery and he mentioned that you have some really interesting ideas on the intersection between theories of adult development and increasing nervous system regulation um so i'd be really curious to hear how you see those two planes of development Kind of playing with each other hmm. totally yeah so that's the frame this so my the the work that i do in psychology as a theorist is trying to find a way to get all the different sub branches of psychology to actually hold together and mm. not tell contradictory stories which usually they do because they're yeah. kind of in competition with one another it's not easy fun. that's another story so there's a lot of talk in cognitive neuroscience about human state and human state regulation. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is key. And I, as a graduate student, worked in the field of mind, brain, and education, where they were trying to apply advances in neuroscience and specifically affective or emotional neuroscience to education. So I was kind of in that whole conversation. At the same time, I was studying cognitive development. And that looks at 
not emotional regulation, <laughs> uh, but rather just uh, cognitive complexification, if I can mm -hmm. put it that way, right? Mm -hmm. And then, so there was this question of like, well, what's the relation between cognitive complexity and emotion? Uh, and then of course, as I've already mentioned, there's a third factor, which is personality, which is the domain of ensoulment, where you have those mm -hmm. stations of maturity. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so all three of those actually are factored, even when you're thinking about how does someone gain control over their state experience? How do they gain control of their nervous system? Mm -hmm. um, and so basically the insight that I think Thorsten's probably speaking to is just, is just that, that basically one of the, when you're thinking about, okay, here's a person, they're emotionally dysregulated. They're prone to, let's say, anxiety. It's very common. Like, how does one work with them? What will it mean to them in their cognitive developmental framework, which is say in terms of the way they think about themselves in the world. Um, what will it mean to them when I tell them to watch their breath, for example, or give them a cognitive behavioral tool to reframe their experience. Um, uh, and so most somatic practitioners know this and many psychotherapists know this too, which is that like, there's a certain amount of like, people need to get what you're doing. <laughs> like they need to, understand what you're doing in a reflective enough way and even be able to articulate how it works often to really, really make the practice their own and kind of really benefit from that. And so that's a place where you have cognitive capacity, which is just like easy to build. You know, you just have to take the time to make that form of education a part of the practice. Cognitive capacity interfaces with these embodiment capacities for emotional regulation at yep. the intersection where you try to understand it. Yep. And then of course, there's a question of, are you the kind of person who could actually incorporate this kind of practice into your life? Which is a question about your personality. Mm. Like, mm -hmm. like men in particular, and maybe not, you know, men from California, but many men, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, find it hard to just do embodiment practices like yoga sure. and stuff, you know sure. what I mean? Uh, so there's also a personality, which is about the image of yourself in the domain of ensoulment. Who do you think you are? And then can you understand it? And then that notion of like cognitive awareness benefiting the ability to do the practice and be motivated to do the practice and even mm -hmm. to do it well. Um, so, and then there's other, like, again, neuroscience is a weird field. That's another thing I learned. It's hard to know what's really going on. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. And I said weird, like in a technical way, meaning it's all white, European Democrat, you know, like oh, I see, yeah, democratic <laughs> okay. states. You know that field yeah, yeah, of research, yeah. like it's, yeah. it's weird in yeah. that sense that we don't really know how the brain works. We're mostly yeah. studying universal patterns that occur across a whole bunch of brains that we try to homogenize, as opposed mm -hmm. to studying unique neuro neuronal manifestations, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's that's why I take a lot of it with a grain of salt. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also a hemispheric thing that happens through different stages of cognitive development. Um, mm -hmm. And so Kurt demonstrated this in his work in the 90s, um, looking at a very large kind of EEG study in Sweden that followed longitudinally hundreds of kids from young age to, I think, 40 or 50. And it looked at differences in hemispheric activation. Mm -hmm. And there was a clear cyclical pattern of going from right to left, to both, to right, to left, to both, to right, to left, to both, mm. uh, as they move through 
uh, the stages of development that Kurt had identified that were large scale shifts, kind of Piagetian stages. Um, mm -hmm. So the, and as we know from McGilchrist's work and others that the hemispheric dominance is a key factor and interhemisphere coordination are key factors. And so the lesson from Kurt's work is that mm -hmm. um, things that promote interhemispheric working probably also promote development because development works by actually moving the whole predominant structure through the iteration, which McGilchrist identifies, right? That full mm -hmm. cycle of decision-making should include both <laughs> hemispheres, not mm -hmm. one. And yet we live in a culture that is predominantly one. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's another lesson where cognitive development actually, I think, impacts broad structures in the nervous system itself, which yeah. then impact emotional regulation, which then impact the broad structures, which impact cognitive development. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, totally, so totally. That's what I'm saying. It's like, it's really slippery when you get up into the psyche and try to relate it to the physics of the nervous system. Yeah. And that's yeah. what I think uh, is hard. It's like, where are we at doing anatomy and where are we doing like quantum mechanics and where we're doing like electrical engineering <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> you know what i mean and like and then where are we where are we doing complex. thinking and decision making and transcendence so it's so yeah, yeah but i'm i'm with you there's there's a certain kind of work of emotional self-regulation in particular uh which i don't know how to crack that like how to solve that problem at on a larger scale mm great individual practitioners but we seem to have a whole technology suite and kind of institutional suite in our, in our civilization at large at least in the united states um which makes people prone to pretty unhealthy forms of emotional self-regulation totally. uh, uh you know as trium trunkpa said it's like everyone has a practice just sometimes <laughs> it's hard to identify it's probably not the trunkpa it's a way had the, the good one liners didn't he yeah um yeah that's that's really really interesting i'm, I'm actually currently reading mcgilchrist's latest book on the matter with things and he, he's he's yeah. attempting to i think integrate the kind of the quantum physics perspective the neuroscience and the spiritual to some degree at least in in the final chapter and i'm i haven't got there yet but i'm i'm How really excited it's huge, <laughs> it's huge yeah <laughs> yeah it's, it's a real beast of a book um but it does feel like these these kind of siloed disciplines do seem to be converging on a kind of common point to some degree um and something that i was thinking about was kind of coming back to the idea of the post-tragic perspective i i feel like that is related to increasing nervous system capacity and like the ability or the capacity for someone to sit with the full spectrum of emotional intensity without blasting through your window of tolerance feels like a really crucial aspect of being able to inhabit that perspective because if, if you go beyond your window of tolerance you will sh you, you know you'll shut down like and you'll just kind of go into withdrawal or, or whatever so i feel like there's a real relationship there no it's definitely true like all all the dimensions i've been speaking to the kind of dimension of emotional self-regulation dimension of emotional maturity and the mm -hmm. dimension of cognitive development all involve brain processes and so when you're looking at the you know, kind of forms of personality development that are post-tragic, you're actually looking at forms of emotional regulation. And like, as we were saying, emotional throughput. Um, mm -hmm. And no one's of course researched this, but you would speculate that you'd have unique 
structures and connections between regions of emotion and, and cognition. Um, mm -hmm. And as you're, as you're kind of noting in passing, like just under duress, the ability to manage complexity goes down, right? So mm -hmm. like, if you have a certain level of cognitive development where you can like easily do stuff that, you know, that's in your professional field and you're put under duress um, or made sick or something like, you will drop in your cognitive capacity. Uh, and then that will have a vicious seed feedback cycle into the duress and then it'll come yep. back. So there's a certain resiliency that comes from having high cognitive capacity. Mm. Right? And this is a thing also known in, in the literature. IQ is not predictive of post-traumatic growth. And IQ is not a useful construct, but it, it's clear that a certain kind of intelligent adaptiveness uh, does characterize post-traumatic growth. Um, so I guess I'm saying that, yeah, when you're looking to get emotional self-regulation going, sometimes you shouldn't just focus on emotional self-regulation. If you were to make this person more capable and strong and intelligent across other domains of their life, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, at the same time you're doing that, you'd have this virtuous feedback loop between the kind of like cognitive empowerment and the emotional training because then the next time a complex cognitive task comes they meet it with the cognitive complexity that they've developed instead mm -hmm. of having to adapt to it by tending to their emotions right yeah um, yeah totally and so i think that's again you're talking about McGilchrist integrating these different disciplines similarly in kind of the therapeutics you have these different strands of potential modalities to help um, but they focus on on often different aspects of how to weave together for one person a way to give them to give them something it ends up being an interesting problem to solve you almost need like a general practitioner uh, mm -hmm. to to handle almost you know general practitioner in the sense of like integral general practitioners yeah right? someone who is like, like radically <laughs> transdisciplinary who can kind of it, at least have exactly, some understanding of, of all of these different areas yeah, because some anxiety is just nutrition problem. Yeah. <laughs> well, just, I mean, being a vegan is great, but maybe you know, change your diet a little bit and you won't be so anxious. Yeah, change your sleep yeah. sleep habits. And, yeah, 100%. and so it's always very important to kind of have that. And again, that's back to the cognitive complexity bit. So, mm. and again, I'm, what I'm trying to do is balance all those angles because there's so many people who focus on meditation and there's so many people who focus on shadow work mm. and personality development. And there's so many people who just focus on cognitive complexity, getting people up through the second mm. tier or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I'm kind of saying like, yes to everyone. And they all need to somehow interanimate um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh, interanimate in a way that let's say mutually fructifies them if I can. Mm -hmm. <laughs> is a phrase <laughs> uh, that's, that's kind of an inside joke but yeah so the that sense that there's a there's a way to not hypertrophy any one of those because then you get out of sorts um yeah and they can make the other ones work better and i gave an example of that where increasing cognitive capacity lessens susceptibility to overwhelm which aids yep. emotional self-regulation um and then of course emotional self-regulation helps you as a learner to increase your cognitive capacity which that helps you emotionally self-regulate by not being overwhelmed right so you can create virtuous cycles by weaving together different things that would seem to be at different modalities mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah it, it definitely feels like um these need to be brought together in in some way and the, the other thought that i had was around um 
kind of the, the post-tragic perspective and, and it not being this kind of static state that like you you reach but something that is more of a spectrum and something that like like we kind of like dip in and out of and I might even you know me personally I might go back into the into the pre-tragic at some days and just forget everything and it the process of growth being this almost like expanding then contracting and expanding and contracting but hopefully the expansions are a little bit further along each time um yeah absolutely and then in different domains it growth kind of looks different you know and you're right that in the post mm -hmm. in the in the stations of personality development <clears throat> it's definitely the case that you're moving up and down right all the time okay. as you described it and again you can have resolved a tragedy of a certain type and then be encountered by a novel kind of tragedy and not know and yeah. quite how to react and then have to kind of build new muscles in that in that same yeah. domain exactly um you know, and in cognitive development, transformation works in a different kind of way. Systems of prerequisites of prior ideas allow for emergent new, more complex ideas. And um, it's harder to regress back down below certain insights unless you're under extreme duress and a whole bunch mm -hmm. of other stuff. Mm -hmm. And then in these states of experience, uh, emotional self-regulation, um, there's crazy amounts of weird stuff <laughs> where you don't get lockstep stage or dancing between stations or levels. You get discrete phase shifts between mm -hmm. states of consciousness. And mm -hmm. um, not always, but that's what, you know, if you're doing meditation right, you'll come in with monkey mind. And after a certain amount of time, relatively speaking, there'll be an abrupt state shift and you'll be in a different state. Sleep is a classic example of this or intoxication through the use of drugs. <laughs> a good body practitioner, hands-on energy worker, like yep. they will change your yep. state pretty abruptly. Yep. Um, totally. And so, and in those processes, growth occur where you can basically work with those states, right? So that's the idea that now the now you can emotionally self-regulate instead of needing the hands-on body practitioner to emotionally yeah. self-regulate you, right? So but it's yeah. still different from personality development and cognitive development. Right. So I'm trying to stick at that meta level just so you mm -hmm. see that yeah when we talk about growth, it's like, yeah, but which kind? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like and they're and they work differently. And it's definitely true that they all kind of interact um so yeah but that's one of the emphases of the kind of neo piagetian view of development i take is that context emotion interpersonal relations a whole bunch of stuff affect performance and so the idea that someone's like at a level of development or that someone's like enlightened or something it's like that's some strange platonic mm -hmm. <laughs> kind of like essentialization of a psychological process that's actually deeply embedded in context and person mm. and nervous system and relationship right um and so that's it's worth saying that even though we talk about people being post-tragic or people having cognitive complexity or being great meditators or whatever um always with this caveat that that type of performance is in context which means if we change that context then <laughs> i always use the example if i take me to the auto mechanic well my car's not working well i, I just point at the thing it's overheating, <laughs> and the thing's overheating i don't even know what it's called or how it relates to any of these other things man and he comes in and he knows you know and yeah, uh yeah, yeah, and so yeah. changing me kind of looks so smart then 
I seem really smart now. This is great context for me. I'm in my study, <laughs> right? I'm well fed. I've got enough water. And, like, uh, and so that's just key to get. But we tend to want to, and this is why IQ is such a bad construct. We tend to want to like yeah. put some essential trait that is always with you and kind of defines mm-hmm. you. And, um, but the mind is much more malleable for better and for worse than that. Which it also means you're not limited to prior habits of performance um you can often change those often not by working on the thing but by changing context <laughs> right yeah totally. Uh, and totally it's key to get the more you essentialize the thing you have to like well either there's nothing you can do about it or you have to like hypertrophy it when in fact mm-hmm. you just take a step back look across all the different modalities and the contexts and think more strategically you know not strategically but like holistically even though that's not even the right word I'd say integral, but then I'm also <laughs> failing for words, <laughs> you know, and that's a sign of like, you know, yeah. things to come. And Gilchrist also struggling for that transdisciplinary synthesis language. Yeah. 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 No, that that's such a, such a great point. And I, I think of in the context of the nervous system too, like, you know, if you take someone who is on the edge of burnout, if you take them out of the city and kind of place them in nature for a few weeks, um with like a good couple of friends like their nervous system will shift pretty rapidly on its own accord like so much of it is dependent on the situations and the people that we're that we're around um yeah so shifting gears again slightly there are so many so many things i wanted to talk about um i i understand that you're collaborating or writing a series of books with the aim of of sharing or creating a new kind of practical philosophy that you called cosmoerotic humanism um could you briefly define what you what you mean by this and and maybe what was the the impetus behind the desire to write some of these volumes Mm, totally yeah so the work with gaffney and ken wilbur uh at the center for integral wisdom also called the center for world spirituality you know, the attempt was to try to find a way to um, articulate a, a public global philosophy um, that begins a conversation about basically a new story of value and first principles and first values of what it means to be human. So. <clears throat> that's kind of you know sounds crazy when you say that loud (laughs) but the idea being that there's always been something at the level of what you might call superstructure that was powerful enough to bind the social structure which would be like government and the infrastructure which would be like the economics and the technology you know the superstructure like religious beliefs and ethical beliefs and ideas about what the nature of the human is and what is valuable in particular. Um, uh, and so one of the hypotheses we're running on is that we face existential risks and breakdowns in civilization because infrastructure and social structure have become unbound. They're not binded to each other and they're both severed from superstructure. <laughs> and this is inevitable as, as civilizations grow and as, as learning occurs, that there needs to be something like a resuscitation of the most basic analyses that ground the superstructure and so that's been attempted as i as i already mentioned like we're sitting in a weird situation with a planetary scale civilization with a really deep memory 
deeper than any memory of any civilization that we know of has ever had of all the prior forms of civilization. I mean, look at Graeber's new book. It's crazy. It's like 20, 30 years before Christ, we have cities and stuff. Right? Mm-hmm. So we're remembering mm-hmm. all of this ways that we've been human. Um, so the pre-modern, the modern, the postmodern, if you will, right? All of that needs to be included in some kind of public philosophy. Um, mm-hmm. And the modern includes the sciences and the evolutionary sciences and psychology and all of that stuff. <laughs> and the postmodern includes the critiques of all of that, <laughs> uh, with many of which are legitimate, social justice and a whole bunch of other stuff. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, in a sense, kind of carrying on some of the tradition that Wilbur was a part of, uh, um, which I think of as like a neo-perennialist tradition and perennial philosophy as Adolf Huxley expressed it, but it goes back to Leibniz and ultimately Comenius. Mm. What you have is the idea that at the core of all human knowledge is a, is, a, is a way of knowing. And at the core of all religious traditions is something that's common. Mm. And so cosmoronic humanism is not an answer to that, but an attempt to start that conversation again, <laughs> mm. basically about what's the shared story of value and first principles for our species guys <laughs> like that's where we're trying to start that conversation and so yeah, yeah, it, yeah. we're trying to integrate the best of the pre-modern modern post-modern into an attempted kind of answer but we know that's a parochial answer limited to time and space the, the main thing is this question we're asking about mm-hmm. the need for a planetary scale solution to the problem of superstructure just yeah. something like a world spirituality or world philosophy and we're not claiming to have it we're Mm -hmm. claiming to recognize the problem and begin a first pass at answering it and Mm -hmm. so part of that is a retelling of the cosmic story which allows us to understand the place of value in the universe Uh, and some of that's a retelling of the human individual and the value of human individual in light of what we know about a retelling (laughs) of the cosmos in which value is intrinsic Mm -hmm. Um, and the speculation as we've already discussed of an evolutionarily emergent kind of bifurcation in human history that is in the near future right Mm -hmm. uh where we somehow emerge into a new way of being and we postulate that that's something like the evolutionary emergence from homo sapiens into what we're calling homo amor Mm -hmm. which is basically the, the being of love a reflective being of love and we're arguing that that's at the core of all the religious traditions mm-hmm. <laughs> and science as an aspect of human knowing. And it's a way of thinking that integrates the pre-modern, the modern, and the postmodern. And it's a hypothesis for what could be a shared core of first principles and first values. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's many books postulated. You know, some of them are basically in the realm of metaphysics. Some of them are in the realm of what could be called meta history, big history. Some of them are just psychology and philosophy. Um, and uh, it's a team of writers, but it's primarily Mark Gaffney and myself uh, with Ken Wilbur Consulting. Um, and so there, we're not in a rush. Obviously, we're trying to sound the alarm, but we're also trying to slowly build the knowledge that's needed to make this argument as well as we as we can. And so we're going to have kind of the first two books in this series, which were blessedly co-authored with Barbara Marks Hubbard should be coming out fairly soon before she passed. We had all of these manuscripts in process with her. And so the first things we're releasing are those. Um, and then there'll be a, yeah, a series of books that 
uh, beginning with a critique of techno-capitalism um, and specifically the kind of what you could call the techno-social engineering dilemma or the social dilemma or like social media Facebook stuff yep. as an example of what happens in a civilization that has lost its superstructural orientation sure. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> in first principles, first values and coherent story of self and cosmos, which needs to be rearticulated. Um, yeah. uh, so, so that's the work and it's, it's endlessly fascinating and actually kind of crazy important, but very subtle, right? Because most of the problems in infrastructure and social structure are obvious, like oil spills and, you know, mines extracting rare earth minerals and then like political polarization, dysfunctional democratic mechanisms and stuff. So you can see that stuff. But in super in superstructure, mm -hmm. it's harder to see and, and and it's harder to like put your finger on exactly mm -hmm. what is wrong with the way we think and, and what's wrong with the way we value, mm -hmm. right? Are valuing as a verb. <laughs> mm. We have a preference falsification has set in in kind of a deep way. We don't know exactly what matters or why it matters. Many of us do, but we don't have a shared story <laughs> about why that's convincing in light of all the science, which has been telling us that the universe is meaningless, right? Mm -hmm. like the universe mm -hmm. is a meaningless mechanism that spud us out, like spurted us out randomly, kind of like, why did you even do that? What does it really matter kind of stuff? And our answer is like, really guys, that's the best you got? Cause that seems like a pretty adolescent answer. Uh, you know, like there's a lot more, A, that science tells us what you guys aren't really letting yeah. out and B, yeah, yeah. Uh, that satisfies these other dimensions of ensoulment and transcendence, not hypertrophying the cognitive reductive causal view. So it's, yep. it's rescuing science from the clutches of positivism, reuniting science with humanities and specifically in a kind of perennialist frame of saying like, no, are human universals? Hmm. We don't need to be colonialist about that. And in fact, one of the human universals is don't be colonialist about this, <laughs> <laughs> right? And they've been discovered everywhere, not just in the West. And that's the whole point about perennialism is that it's you know, we're talking about the Indian subcontinent, Africa, you know, Siberia, like these things occur wherever major religious yep. uh, speculation and practice occurs. Um, so harvesting the riches of perennialism allowed us, and again, absorbing the postmodern critique of perennialism. So mm -hmm. it's many mm -hmm. books, so I could obviously just keep <laughs> going on about it. Uh, but yeah, so that's the, that's the attempt of what it is. Um, and it's related to the nuos arc in a way because I'm, we're basically kind of saying like what yeah what's kind of the minimal viable first start to kind of like get that problem solved at the level of of superstructure yeah. um and you know it's a complex problem because it, it will involve interreligious dialogue and dialogue between sciences and religion and dialogue between both of those and what we call governance and uh so political philosophy is one of the volumes that is is projected, uh, as I said, as well as psychology. So yeah, it's a it's a pretty deep effort. It's been it's been going pretty well, all things considered. <laughs> wow, I mean it it sounds it sounds so like beautifully ambitious. And, and what I think I love is that it's almost like you're you're kind of living in that question. You've you've almost identified the the hidden foundational question that is potentially at the root of a lot of the the sub problems that we've been trying to address. 
and could could you speak to maybe kind of flesh out a little bit more of, of what you mean by homo amor and and how it how is it different like for, for listeners say like how would their perception of the world and themselves change through the lens of homo amor compared to homo deus homo sapiens these other kind of self-definitions that we have yeah so you got homo deus that was a good catch because that it was in juxtaposition to harare that we articulate got it. this because okay. when you read harare and you realize that Harari's books are massively influential, like Obama is like rec- recommending them and stuff. Yeah, yeah. You're like this is some nihilistic, relativistic, postmodern stuff. <laughs> you know, Harari is a very convincing storyteller, but when you look yeah, very yeah. carefully as a philosopher reading it, you realize like this mm-hmm. guy is, you know, basically saying everything's a story and all stories are equally unreal. Um, mm-hmm. And positioning the human in kind of an evolutionary cosmology that's stripped from actual real value existing in the universe. Um, and so you were right to say we're looking at a deeper root cause below even some of like the zero-sum game kind of like generator functions of our specific civilization and the diagnosis is something like an intimacy disorder like a a widespread disorder of the capacity for human intimacy and so Mm. the first thing that you feel in homo more is that is a return to the valuing of intimacy uh, and not sexual intimacy or things like that but actual sharing of reality together and then deepening it saying that intimacy as we experience it is the very stuff that the cosmos itself has been running on for billions and billions and billions of years that the way your cells hold together uh, that the adaptations to crisis we discussed before in evolution the way the new emergences occur the many coming together to form one mm the new form of intimacy essentially between parts that used to be more disparate and disconnected now they come together and they form a new whole right that's Mm -hmm. intimacy if broadly construed (laughs) Mm. and there are many concepts that can be looked back through the evolutionary timeline and you can see that Mm. we're we're home here we just need to remember that and play that out amongst ourselves and so Mm Yeah, the diagnosis of global intimacy disorder with the solution of evolutionary emergence into mm-hmm. homo amor. Uh, and again, if he hadn't coined the term homo deus, I don't know that we would have gone into the homo uh, amor. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there's been several attempts to kind of name that, even yeah. beginning with Chiliard de Chardin and, and Barbara Marx Hubbard was deep in this, in this mix of kind of saying, listen, again, planetary civilization, all of this memory, high science, atomic bombs leaving the planet, like we're about to become something very different than we have been yeah. for probably millions of years. Yeah, uh, there's yeah. evidence of tool use for like 3 million years or something. And then we get the historical record at about 20 or 30,000 years um, BC. Uh, and that notion that whoom, now we're like all of a sudden um, emerging into something new. And mm-hmm. the question is, is what is it? Um, and of course, homo deus is a kind of, that's a god and kind of the, it's a deus meaning divine or god and kind of, I think the worst kind of Greek sense <laughs> of like rapacious, exploitative, strategic mm-hmm. kind of supermen mm-hmm. who take advantage of humans. Mm-hmm. And that's what he's seeing, a breakaway civilization. Mm-hmm. And we're suggesting something different that mm-hmm. that would increase the intimacy disorder and it would be inevitably mm-hmm. self-terminating. 
Mm -hmm. So we're suggesting that the, the global intimacy disorder needs to be resolved quickly. And in one sense, we're just trying to remind ourselves of first principles and first values that we're already kind of committed to <laughs> uh, just by having this nervous system. Um, mm -hmm. So we talk about what we call anthroontology, which is an epistemological method um, to know, you know, to know, not to be told and to believe, but to know. Uh, and so that return to, I don't know, basic humaning. <laughs> yeah. Basic being, that basic <laughs> how to, how to being human. of human. Yeah. And yeah, so that's yeah, the, the call yeah. of cosmoronic humanism. Uh, yeah. And Homo more again, is an emergent capacity. Um, yeah. And it is, uh, you know, a long prophesized capacity in the religious mm -hmm. traditions. And so that's where we merge our discourse explicitly because again Gaffney is a rabbi <laughs> like we we merge it explicitly with the lineage traditions to bring home more, more up into kind of the iconography and idealizations of messianic discourses throughout time and interestingly enough you get the messianic and the apocalyptic co-occurring uh in in the dynamics of religious literature as mm -hmm. like competing terminal visions of civilization mm -hmm. and so one of the things that we're hoping for is kind of like a leaning into the the messianic yeah. <laughs> in hopes that the human can pull it off um yeah. and so i'm glad you asked about that not many mm -hmm. people go directly to the cosmoerotic humanism so because mm -hmm. it's uh like as you said it's uh, it's very ambitious and uh, human universals and things of that nature get a bad rap these days. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's so much there. Um, yeah, I, I almost have, um, it, it kind of echoes like Thich Nhat Hans, his story of interbeing or Charles Eisenstein, the more beautiful world that our hearts know is possible. And there's almost like these different people have kind of been pointing to it, but I, I really do love the articulation of Homo Amor and <clears throat> I, I'd not heard the phrase global intimacy disorder before. And what it reminded me of was something that, uh, again, Daniel Schmachtenberger mentioned, which was his kind of proxy for genuine health or flourishing of civilization is the reverse of addiction. And it seems to me like knowing what I know about the nervous system that, um, intimacy is the the antidote in some ways for addiction and 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 really the the antidote for traumatized nervous systems is also intimacy intimacy with self and intimacy with with others and with with the world with the universe um so it, it really does seem to like capture like the 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 essence of what i think is like the underlying problem but we're just we're not seeing it as that um, i think it, it's such a powerful idea yeah totally man completely agree completely agree <laughs> wow um so i want to be uh conscious and respectful of your time um i have a few rapid fire questions uh, your answers don't need to be rapid fire necessarily and then uh and then we'll wrap up okay so um first question <laughs> how might you describe uh your upcoming books to a curious 10 year old um I think I would say something like, do you like school? I'd ask them, I'd say, do you like school? And then depending 
what they said, I would give an answer. If they said, I love school, I said, I write about how to make the most amazing schools that humans have ever experienced. And if they say, I hate school, I say, I'm writing about how we take schools apart and make something <laughs> that's way, way better. <laughs> uh, so maybe that's younger than 10, but that's kind of how we're, that's the like simple version. You know, that's a great, great strategy. Yeah, get, get them on board. Yeah, exactly. I, and I and then something about how important, how important education is. Yeah, that I write about like the most important thing is about what we do with our younger generations and the attention we pay them and the quality of the education. So it'd be great to talk to a 10 year old because I'd make them feel important. Mm. Hmm. Love it. What are we losing by ignoring the inevitability of death in our culture? It's a huge question. <laughs> I'm going to try to be as short as possible and then you'll just go next. So, so what are we losing? The inevitability of death. I think we're losing the ability to truly live. That's my answer. Nice. Short and sweet. When someone, well, let's say me, feels overwhelmed by existential risk, how might we or I choose where to place my time and attention? Mm. so as i said before cosmoronic humanism is attempting to talk about the existence of value uh in a cosmic frame that things that are valuable for example like the sacred are valuable irrespective but often in interaction with the human uh, so in the context of existential risk, it actually becomes extremely important to attend to the things that are most valuable to you, truly most valuable. <laughs> uh, and again, if you're talking about the things that are truly most valuable, it's unlikely that what you're going to do is going to be selfish. Um, so talk about the things that are actually truly valuable. <laughs> uh, so that would be, I think, the response. One of the main one being something like the sacred, something like the category of the sacred that attending to the category of the sacred meaning having that experience of the living sacred in your awareness mm. usually you can step through that into something that looks more like i don't know work <laughs> you know or like mm -hmm. like dealing or like reconstituting courage or faith or something mm. um, so the tendency is to, to move directly to action uh, and to move directly to fix or to protect oneself and I'm saying, actually, I think the first action should be to attend to value what's actually valuable right now in your environment. Mm -hmm. um, and then move down that value of vector towards something like a sacred, the sacred. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, yeah. And then lastly, what is your greatest hope or prayer for how your work and writing is received in the coming decades? Uh, <laughs> I'm not really sure. Um, I don't think a lot about that, frankly. I hope I don't get canceled. <laughs> uh, the, uh, I mean, I, my hope is that there is a movement of decentralized educational hubs and then we have something like an educational renaissance at planetary scale and then my work somehow contributes a little bit to that 
to that vision. That would be my hope that it's that it's read and influential. And even if people don't cite it or whatever, but that the ideas get moving and that we actually read, think about the value of education in a fundamentally different way. I think that would be very exciting to me. So my hope is that, yeah, it spreads widely um, and actually creates a whole bunch of stuff like institutions and educational technologies and mm. things of that nature. Mm, thank you. Well, um, this has honestly been such a, such a pleasure. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you, truly. It's a blast. <laughs> um, where can listeners find out more about your work and your writing? And is there anything specific that you'd encourage they check out or things they can support? Yeah, so the Consilience Project is where most of my writing energy has been going these days. And mm -hmm. we didn't talk about that here, but it's a whole, it's a very interesting um, yep. set of scholars there working together to publish some interesting material. Um, so consilienceproject.org. And then my personal website, zachstein.org. I've got most of my publications there. Um, uh, and then my second book, Education in Time Between Worlds, is on Amazon. Yeah, and so that's the place to get a lot of, a lot of this. Um, amazing i'll include the links in in the show notes okay so I'd, I'd like to close with with this rule k line um he says try to love the questions themselves and live them now perhaps you will then gradually without noticing it live your way into the answer and with that in mind what is the question that is most alive in your heart right now and what question might you leave our listeners with so one and the same question i'll leave the listeners with the question that kind of is alive in my heart right now uh and that question would be something like what is the nature of justice between generations mm. What is the nature of intergenerational justice and what are our obligations to the ones who come after us? Okay, thank you, Zach. We will wrap the show with that. Thank you so much. Right on. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It would mean a lot to me if you could take a few seconds to open up your podcast app and give Curious Humans a shiny five-star rating. This not only helps more people to find it, but it will help me to get more awesome guests in the future. And if you're not already subscribed, then the Curious Humans newsletter is where I share monthly morsels of interestingness and podcast updates. You can sign up for that at johnny.life. That's J-O-N-N-Y dot life.